Relax said the night man. We are programmed to receive. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Welcome to this week's Liverpool.com podcast. I am Dan Morgan, joined by David Lynch, Joel Rabinovitz and Matt Addison. In the aftermath of Liverpool and 11 other teams deciding they wanted to go and form a Super League, but then realising you needed to do more than just set up a website to do so. Um, We are going to chat about everything Super League reaction uh, from a Liverpool point of view. I mean, Dave, I'll just start with you. Just give us your reaction to the last few days because we're at a point now where we've gone from the news break on Sunday to to John Henry posting a video this morning, um, giving a very public apology, something he very rarely does. Uh, and it feels now like we're all just left to sort of pick up the pieces of what's just happened over the last 72 hours. Yeah, it's just been a whirlwind, hasn't it? And I think the, the thing I can't stop thinking about with all this is that this threat, this threat of a super league has been going on for for twenty years, and and you know, and that's been the constant push to get more money out of UEFA relating to the Champions League. And then you know, for years people have been saying, haven't they? Call call the bluff, call the bluff, let them try it, let them try it. And it didn't even come to that. The clubs were were arrogant enough to to try it themselves, and then in the end. 48 hours it lasted, which is just embarrassing. You you think that the billionaire owners of these clubs are, are, are intelligent people and I think we've been, it's been proven completely, hasn't it, in the last 48 hours that they're not. They didn't have a depth to the plan. There wasn't, you know, there were so many issues they hadn't worked out around it and it just, you know, it was a straw house really. It just got blown down. It's just absolutely embarrassing situation. I think the one positive to take from it, and, and I think it is a major positive, is that football fans in this country now have, have shown that they, you know, they've got a united voice. If they can stick together on issues like this, um, you know, you can fight this sort of stuff, and and, and that is a, a fantastic lesson to learn and something I hope gets taken forward from here because there are still huge issues with football. Um, but yeah, I think you know the the overriding feeling is is relief and and, and you know happiness that. That's been fought and, and, and shot down, really, and, and I just hope that's not the, the end of it either. I hope you know there's been talk of legislation in re- recent days, and I think that's an absolute must from here. I don't, I don't think we can stop here. What What did you hear about Liverpool's climb down? Uh, just well, I, it was obvious from you know from yesterday morning when um, when they were supposed to be having a, a sort of town hall meeting, when they were between the staff. That got cancelled, bang on full time um, on Monday night against after the Leeds United game, and I thought from that point, I thought from that point it wouldn't happen to be honest, because I, I just think that the moment that you start, you know, moving things like that around, and they, they were obviously in crisis mode, weren't they? And 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 you were already hearing by that point as well rumours that that Chelsea and City were having doubts. So I think from the from the moment they cancelled that meeting where we were, we were planning to to flesh out the plans to the staff, many of the staff, by the way, you had huge concerns about this, and I think. I think Billy Hogan would have come under huge pressure at that meeting if he did taken questions because most of the staff at Liverpool Football Club are huge fans of the club and they completely agree with everyone else and they had been blindsided as much as any supporter, as much as the manager, as much as the players. You know, no one at Chapel Street, for example, knew had a clue about this or anything about it until it sort of happened. So it's it's purely the baby of the people who were based in Boston, um, and, and yeah, like I say, as soon as that that call came in that the meeting was cancelled at full time against Leeds United, I thought. This is the beginning of the end. It's it's so staggering, Matt, isn't it? Just how little planning has gone into this. I mean, and we're seeing now, we're seeing now a lot of sort of PR strategies being put in place. From particularly, you can see around City and Chelsea. Of all, we were basically pressured into this because we were fearing missing out, and and now 
you know, we were the first to pull out, so we deserve some credit. There's, there'll be more of this posturing to come. But in all, I'm struggling to find any positives we can take from the last 48 hours. I, I completely take Dave's point in that we get to see the movement and the power of supporters yet again. But just from a just from a point of view of where football goes now and moves forward, the the manner in which this has been done, it does show you that the, those operating at the top are not as not as thought out and forthright as, as we can imagine sometimes. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, Manchester City and Chelsea, just to touch on them, they, they don't get any credit in my book and I don't think they will moving forward for being the first ones to pull out. They were as much a part of it as, as all of the, of the others. I know Manchester United and, and Liverpool were kind of at the forefront of it with Real Madrid, but the other ones went along with it, Tottenham and Arsenal as well. You know, none of these clubs, Arsenal have probably been the only one to, to put out a proper apology straight away until obviously John Henry has this morning. But, you know, even they, you know, the remorse is, is almost hollow. The fact that they've done it in the first place, they've gone so far over the line, it, it's impossible to come back. And I think that's exactly the same with FSG. Now you wonder, you know, you ask the question, what happens next? Well, what does happen next for FSG? I think the, the whole time, they, they've gone so far over the line this time. The, the reputation is tarnished. The reputation is gone. It, it's beyond repair for me. I don't think Liverpool fans, whatever they do, whatever they say going forward, people will look back to this 48 hours and go, well, clearly you don't understand the fans. You don't understand the football club, the values of it. You don't understand what we want from it. Clearly, you know, whatever they say is is just completely irrelevant from now on for me. I don't think Liverpool fans have, have got that trust. I don't think that trust can be rebuilt. And I think that's probably the same for, for all of, of the clubs. I think, you know, moving forward, the, the rest of the Premier League are going to look at, at these clubs in a certain way. Whatever they do, there's there's going to be immediate sort of scepticism as to why that is. And, you know, David used the, the word arrogance. I think that's absolutely spot on. I think there's no way that I believe that John Henry and people within FSG, I know he's put it all on, on his shoulders, which I think is is important in itself. But whoever has made this decision, there's no way that they're stupid enough not to know what the reaction would be. To me, they've looked at it and thought the money is worthwhile, the reaction. And if we can get this through, it'll be worth all of the pain. Ultimately, and thankfully, they haven't managed to do that. But the fact that they even thought that it was worthwhile going through all this to force this through just underlines to me the fact that they are just either so, so stupid and, and so far out of touch or they're so, so arrogant that they thought they could do it anyway. And, you know, either one of, of those two possibilities is is really not good for, for them moving forward. It, it's not good for, for what they've done. They've just completely and utterly ruined all of the good things that they've done at Liverpool because, you know, make no mistake, they've, they've done a lot of good things. They've been here long enough that, you know, they've won trophies, they've brought in Jurgen Klopp. For me, when we look back at, at FSG's time at Liverpool, this is what we're going to look back at and go, well, yeah, they did good stuff, but ultimately they've ruined it for themselves. I mean, Joel, I think intention is a big thing here and we're going to have to sort of dig deep into finding out what the intentions of each club were as this fallout continues. I, I was surprised to see the likes of Chelsea and City in there to begin with, to be honest. City in particular now, given the, the economic state of football in the game, 
uh, at a club who hold many cards, uh, especially for the fact that they, they, they didn't have that Champions League ban upheld. They have a lot of power in the game already. You would imagine they were sold on the concept of, of more income and more more economy as, as most clubs would have been. But from a Liverpool point of view, transparency from FSG is one of the things that's been missing and one of the things that's been most frustrating. And I think it's in their best interests now to try and be transparent or to be as transparent as they can about what their intentions were. Because I think, to defend them slightly for a second, I think some of their intentions are decent. I think they have a real problem with the lack of accountability around FFP because they clearly abide by it and believe in it and set their store to it. And then they see things like City's ban being overturned and they feel like at times they're fighting a bit of a losing battle. I think they also have a problem around broadcast rights, which I think you can make a reasoned argument that they are, they are right to have because Liverpool can be flogged by name certain TV company one day um, and not have any sort of say in how they broadcast their own TV deals or their own their own revenues from from the games that are shown. I guess where I'm going with this is I think transparency now and setting out their intentions as to what they want, not only from Liverpool but from the future of football, is going to be massive. And if they just go mute again to the point in which they give another opinion down the line about something that you know they haven't consulted fans on or they haven't they haven't tried to to delegate with fan supporters groups or anyone like that first then they're going to just keep making the same mistakes and receiving the same backlash i mean this is what the fourth or fifth time that something like this has happened but it feels like with the ticket prices and the furlough thing and the trademark whole fiasco i think almost every time the magnitude of the error of judgment has got even bigger um, and they've kind of underestimated the the extent of the backlash even more every time And i think what's different about this one and what i think what the guys are referring to in terms of it being almost impossible to see how they fully come back from it is the fact that this time they they've actually trampled on Klopp and the players i think that's They've upset the fans massively before and Klopp and the players haven't necessarily had to come out publicly and kind of condemn something. But the fact as well that I know it wouldn't have been entirely within FSG's control, obviously, when it was announced on Sunday night. But the fact that that happened kind of less than 24 hours before Liverpool had what was a really important game and there's kind of that whole aspect has been completely overlooked. The fact that they could be sitting joint on points with Chelsea now, people have almost forgotten that because of what happened. But the disruption that caused, the fact that the, the manager himself, the players after the match, Milner had to go and do that interview, face the noise themselves, whilst FSG just basically hid and let let it all kind of come crashing down on them. It's hugely unfortunate that Liverpool had to be the first club um, to play a game and be asked those questions after that news was announced. But yeah, in terms of the trust thing now, I mean, it's difficult because... When I first saw the news, I couldn't believe the fact that they, I know what Matt mentioned there, that they kind of made a calculated choice that the, they knew what the reaction would be and they thought that financially it was worth it. But I don't think they could have fully anticipated quite how strong it was and still gone ahead with it because what what is staggering is that they aren't, they clearly aren't stupid people. They're 
quite intelligent businessmen who have got where they are uh, and have had to make kind of big decisions in the past. So the fact that they could, they have someone within their own ranks, the actual FSG president, Mike Gordon, is someone who has a close personal relationship with Klopp, speaks to him on a regular basis or so, you're told. It would have taken a phone call to know very, very quickly how this was going to go down. Klopp's even been on record, I think it was as recently as, as 2019, when he's asked about the Super League, saying that he is aggressively against the whole concept. So it, almost the information was out there before they even decided to go ahead with it. So I think that was, for me, the most shocking aspect is that they've hired this coach who is arguably the most influential manager in Liverpool's history, definitely in their modern history. And they've backed him in the market to buy the players he wanted to buy and he's kind of given them all this success and that relationship between specifically between Klopp and Gordon but from everything you've read before Klopp and FSG have a very close relationship it's not like he's kind of outwardly spoken against the owners in the past so the fact that they could do something that they knew would go so against the kind of the principles of the manager of the club I think that for me is probably the most interesting aspect moving forward especially kind of looking to the summer transfer market, Liverpool squad, as we've spoken about on here countless times, is probably going to need quite a bit of, if not overhauling, then sort of pretty significant surgery this summer. And it's how they sort of square that with Klopp and the players. And I think going forward, it, it's there are already kind of significant doubts within the fan base, but the fact that the actual kind of most significant people at the club in, in terms of, of the staff in, in, in Klopp and, and the squad themselves, the fact that they have felt so wronged by this, I think that relationship going forward is, is going to be quite difficult to mend. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I think, Dave, I think I'm, I think I'm so angry at the fact that there's a lot of people now who, let's have it right, were, were frankly panicked by this and were so... I'm so scared by the prospect of this, and I'm talking football fans, everyday football fans like you or I here, that they very quickly yearned for a return to normality, a return to convention of what we know and what we've always known because it was so threatened with being taken away. But let's not pretend that football was was a was a bastion of, of fairness and did, was was not without its problems beforehand. You know, I can reel off a number of things now which were massively problematic in football and they are as recent as last week when it was reported, I think, by Miguel Delaney that Boris Johnson had been asked to step in and overturn the Premier League to ensure that Newcastle could go through with the Saudi takeover. Now... You t- you spoke before rightly about the whole country coming together in a manner in which we've not seen for, I would argue, greater social causes than this um, in recent times. But football and UEFA is massively problematic still. Manchester City will probably win a competition this season they should be banned from. The, the principal owner of a company that is the owner of Paris Saint-Germain is on the board at UEFA and owns the television company that has the chief rights to the Champions League. These these are issues that, again, to, to put FSG aside for a moment, they need addressing. And my worry now is that everyone is so panicked by the prospect of a Super League because it was so flawed that 
we go back to the life we had without questioning the things that needed overturning um real sort of mediation and a process probably from government in terms of legislation to make football fairer and to make things like sports washing um go away for for good because Liverpool Liverpool have done what they've done over the past years, but let's have it right. It's the ultimate David and Goliath. They fought they fought states and they fought um they fought brands such as City and PSG that people assumed were gonna just dominate football for the next decade and beyond. And Liverpool were able to to do it their way, but that was seen as a miracle. You know, equality in football, I guess what I'm getting at, is a long way off, even though this is now out the window. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I hope this is a foundation to, to wider change in football. But I would also point out that, you know, there, there are issues with FFP in the sense that, you know, in its in its guys that, that basically got defeated by Manchester City, Liverpool simply become the Goliath then, don't they? They, they become the unbeatable side in terms of their financial might and, and they would apply it probably more intelligently than say Manchester United so there's a real chance that Liverpool would just become England's dominant team for as long until Manchester United sort themselves out which I suppose most Liverpool fans will hope is a, is a long way down the line so uh, you know I, I think what what's important about what's gone on is that so many of the issues particularly regarding the Champions League and the way that UEFA was running things have been you know, caused by the, the huge power that these clubs have in terms of lobbying because of this constant threat of the Super League. So that UEFA have, have had no backbone, no ability to stand up to these teams because they've been constantly scared that this Super League idea will happen. But now that's been proven to be a complete farce and un- unworkable completely. No desire from players, managers, fans, broadcasters even. A, a completely poison brand and it, for which the maths don't add up at all. Um, I think that's that's a positive because that, that will allow UEFA, hopefully... And, and under huge fan pressure, which needs to sustain, to actually govern the game in a, in a way that's that's good for the game itself, and, and and to make changes if they feel like they need to, um, because I think that the support is there, and we can't let this go. And and like I say, also again, that the government pressure needs to be a, a huge sustained part of this. So if if you know if fans can stay united and and keep the pressure on the governments to to keep acting, then that that is a huge part that will put pressure on UEFA as much as anyone else is. You know, the clubs have had their sort of telling off now, but I do think UEFA are due theirs and, and need to get their own house in order. But that that's why every football fan needs to sustain this push and sort of say, OK, there needs to be legislation in England. We're talking about introducing the 50 plus one rule. I think that's an absolute must as a starting point. And then you've got, you know, EU law about, you know, competition law, for example, in the case of this idea that the new Champions League format will have a guaranteed position for two clubs who've had... A, a certain coefficient I think that's absolutely nonsense and we must push back as hard as possible against that so I think it's all about every football fan remembering that this is not the end of the battle this is just the start there are so many issues there that still need resolving but I completely understand why UEFA would put up as the good guys against the idea that was being put forward you just can't allow that that idea to cement itself now because UEFA are definitely not the good guys I don't think anyone in football governance can be regarded in that light and, and fans need to stick together and, and sort of keep pushing change through. Yeah, I mean, Matt, we come back to Liverpool again, and and you know the the idea was was basically flawed from the start because 
it took away the concept of merit. You know, and, and this season is a classic example that Liverpool, in one way or another, will end up getting what they deserve from the season. They will end up getting their rewards or their punishments, if you like, from what has happened through this season. And everyone will have to take their medicine. And yeah, we can argue about injuries and so on and so forth. But if Liverpool finish outside the top four, it will be because it will be because it will be seen as though they've they've not done enough to get in the top four, and it will be seen as though someone else has done more than them to earn that place. And everyone will take that particular pill um, and will try and rebuild and go again. You couldn't have a system where a you would not be punished for your ineptitude domestically, and b. You know, you couldn't have this in place and expect reasonably domestic leagues to survive. They, they wouldn't have done. You could not have had one without the other. And then going back to the whole conversation that we've had so far, you wonder how they thought this could ever work or get through or be accepted by the general public. It seems like a mass underappreciation of people's common sense, basically. Yeah, the, the very definition of sport is that it is competitive and that it matters. And that's why the Premier League has been, you know, at the forefront of, of football in terms of, of revenues, which ultimately is is what these clubs are bothered about. The reason that people tune in and, and they watch these games is because there is a chance that Sheffield United could go to Manchester United and win. If you've got no consequence for that happening, if, you know, there's no reason to, to turn on and, and watch these games, well... I think ultimately people won't. I mean, the the argument would be from from these clubs that the audience is just so huge that if you lose a few of the hardcore fans, it, it doesn't necessarily matter. They're just sort of numbers on a spreadsheet, and that is the case. Of course, that is 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 the case fundamentally. You know, if, if they've done the numbers, they've done the maths, and they've worked out that that is the case, then absolutely fine. But fans are, are more than just numbers on a spreadsheet and i think you know fans obviously the the reaction to this was was obvious if you take away you know the the consequence of these games suddenly everything becomes meaningless and i think that the the big six certainly in england knew that this was the case they knew this is why they thought they could push it through they knew that the premier league for example would just fall apart if they're not there if they remove themselves from it well if you've got Everton and, and Aston Villa and Leeds and all of these teams, they're obviously big teams. They've got big followings. They've got you know people in, in different parts of the world that support them. But it's a very, very small percentage compared to the big six. And that's where this greed came from. They they saw an opportunity. They saw a chance to, to do all of this, regardless of, of what impact that would have on the rest of, of football, what impact that would have on the competitiveness of the league. And you just keep coming back to it. It's it, it's just so blindingly obvious that this would never have worked because of of that. I think you know, short term, a Super League could have worked because you know people would get excited initially. Certainly, of of the, the people who support the bigger teams, you know, I'm sure a lot of people could get on board with the idea that Liverpool play you know Real Madrid and Barcelona and, and these teams. But after two or three years, it just goes to to become normal. It, it becomes something that you just get used to, and it's just like oh yeah got Barcelona away this week whereas that should be something that happens once every four or five years or, or 10 years or, or whatever it's been for Liverpool and that is that's where the the competitiveness of this comes in again it, it's not a competitive game if there's no consequence it's not a competitive game if you're playing the same teams year in year out and yeah fundamentally it was it was just a 
a flawed idea from the start from that, but the arrogance of the team suggested that they could just about squeeze it through. Can I, I just come in on that point, actually, what Matt makes it's very interesting about the, the, the fans in the ground probably being um, considered less valuable in terms of revenue they can generate. And I think you're absolutely right in that that is what they thought, um, which I think speaks to a fundamental misunderstanding of the product in that supporters, even the ones who never attend Anfield, for example, are completely buying into the idea of that, that is part of the product, the, the fans and the atmosphere, particularly for Liverpool. The whole brand is built around it. The club marketing, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. And they believe that that brand could sustain even if you were getting lesser uh, attendances because people were sick of it or the prices were too much. They, do, they don't believe that that's part of the product that they're selling, even though they so heavily lean on it in the marketing. And I find that incredible. And, and, and again, like you say about the, the jeopardy of the games, is that half of the Super League games would have ended up being meaningless. Um, and, and there's a reason that, for example, the ICC preseason friendly tournament, the, the t- television rights to that are not lucrative. Even though it's Liverpool against Manchester United in Miami or Real Madrid against Inter or whatever, the, the reason the TV rights aren't lucrative is because there's nothing riding on the games and no one cares to watch them for that reason. So the, the idea that they could pay this sort of these billions of pounds back to JP Morgan in 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 that loan in television rights is just completely misplaced. Even the preseason friendlies, I mean, I'm sure they'll point to was it Michigan where where Liverpool played a couple of seasons ago? They sell out ninety or a hundred thousand, but even that is a is a rare event in itself. Yeah. Would you get ninety to a hundred thousand people if that was happening twice a week? I don't think you would. I think. The very fact that it is once a year or once every two or three years that Liverpool go to America, that's the whole point, isn't it? It's a rare event. You have to buy your ticket for that match. Otherwise, there's no other opportunity to do it. Sorry, sorry, Dan. Just just to add on that as well, if you look at like this season, for example, if you go to the parallel kind of reality where the Super League was already a thing, if you look at what the Premier League would be now, Basically, I mean, where I don't even know where Arsenal are now, but they're somewhere near mid-table. But you basically would have teams like Leicester and West Ham. Their existence would basically be worthless because that the players that have kind of done well and got them into that position where they've got a realistic chance of finishing in the top four, it would essentially be a competition for them just to basically jump up to a Super League club, and that's it. And then it would just repeat the cycle year after year. The best players from all the clubs, Leicester, West Ham are the obvious ones this season, but also Everton, I don't know who the next ones will be, but we've obviously had Wolves and Sheffield United in recent years who've kind of managed to kind of break through that ceiling, which for so long has been, has, has seemed difficult, but is now kind of becoming increasingly regular. Every season we're getting one or two clubs minimum who are sort of threatening to break the big, I mean, the big six is is more of an idea or a concept based on kind of global popularity and, and heritage than actual kind of current sporting achievement. I mean, I don't know how many seasons it is, again, that Arsenal have been out of the Champions League, just to pick on them as one example. But th- there will be examples in years to come where at least one of the current or so-called big six will kind of drop out for a while. And the fact that that can't be kind of, like you say, punishable, um, in real sporting terms just it is a nonsense because then you'd be watching watching games at this point of the season where again it all becomes about transfers because the players say take Jack Grealish for example who's obviously had a great season at Aston Villa his entire objective wouldn't be to try and get his club into Europe it would just be to try and get a move to one of the Super League clubs and that that would be basically the entire point of of nearly every club apart from the big six in the Premier League so 
yeah, from the start, really, it just it never had any sort of legs to, to go from. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Dave, what did you make of the apology? Because I, th- I found it very interesting. There was a lot of use of the of the, the phrase "your club" from John Henry, um, and and what it's what struck to me. I think Neil Atkinson wrote it this morning on on his Anfield Wrap email. Was that um, Liverpool exists in three places? It, it exists in Boston, it exists in Liverpool, and it exists in London. And the the disparity between those three places and the events of the last 48 hours has been abundantly clear that what has happened has basically evolved from Boston. Um, And I think that John Henry is is in many ways, with that video, decided to become the sacrificial lamb um, and decided that he needs positive energies focused towards the day-to-day running of the club, the manager, the team, and he's happy to be the villain of the piece, which people will, will be happy to make him in that sense because he's, he's obviously done something deemed to be wrong. But I just found it, I found it a really interesting use of words. I found it, if it opens up the the door to just how how separated Liverpool can be at times. And, and we've spoken about it and the fact that, you know, a lot of these staff members, a, a lot of the team, a lot of the squad, a lot of the that the coaching staff weren't aware of what was going on until they were preparing for the game against Leeds. And and you almost find that impossible to believe that this club isn't so intertwined and, and ingrained in its itself that something like that could happen, but it does and it has. And it's a lesson to us in many ways that this is this is a club that exists in many places. Yeah, and I think well for starters that the apology would have had a more profound impact if it wasn't the, what are we on, six or seven apologies from FSG now uh, <laughs> since they took over, probably more than that. Um, you know, yeah, I think at this point, uh, I don't believe that the there is any sort of genuine remorse involved in it um, whatsoever. I think John Henry deserves no credit really for putting himself forward to do that because he is the architect of this idea. It is all his fault. If you'd put some, someone forward like Billy Hogan uh, to, to fall on his sword, in his place, I think that would have reflected horribly on him, uh, because we know that this this is the brainchild of the people in Boston rather than anyone who, who's sort of involved in the day to day running of the club. And I, I think what was interesting about it was there's no mention of what what is going to change off the back of this. Um, you know, this is the the tenth mistake we've made. Therefore, we are going to do this, this, and this. So, are we just basically to assume that? Okay, that apology's there. We all register that. Um, thanks very much. And, and now we just continue as normal until the next gaff uh, happens, which is which is inevitable given the way that the club is run. Um, I, I just don't think it's good enough at all. Um, and I think if you know, it was touched on earlier that that Jurgen Klopp and Mike Gordon are supposed to be in constant communication. So I, I, clearly, they don't speak enough because the, there is such a fundamental misunderstanding between the two about how, what football is and what football should represent, and that Jurgen was not looped in on on even the, the very idea of this uh, before it was publicly announced as the as the future of football. Just says there's a there's a huge problem there, and I think I just think that the, the apology will receive no credit, rightly so, and I, I think there are going to be no there's no promise to changes, and therefore the. the 
I think Liverpool supporters should consider this the start of the end for FSG if that is possible. I know the vast sums of money involved in 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 the game and and the valuation that's put on Liverpool would make that extremely difficult. And I suppose it's better the devil you know in terms of who might come in to replace FSG. But I, I just I just don't think that apology is is worth anything. And I, I, I don't believe there's any change coming or that any lessons have been learned because they haven't been learned before. So it's to me it's to me it's meaningless. Also, apart from kind of the words he used, the fact that it came out, what was it, like nine and a half hours after the official statement is is kind of telling. It's almost like they kind of saw, they put out, what was it, 47 words in the statement, which yeah. didn't say sorry, didn't even acknowledge that it was a mistake, just said that they'd used some really businessy language to basically say they'd had some input from some stakeholders and had decided to withdraw. But they didn't say, it wasn't like the Arsenal one where they basically said, we've, we've made a a screw up here and we're really sorry for it it wasn't nothing and then obviously they got a big backlash from that i think that's why you get the video he's probably seen it and gone oh, i need to actually say something um because his his name hadn't even appeared on the club's website in the entire thing when when man united's owner had so i think yeah i, I don't i don't really take it for, for very much I mean, is it is it the better better the devil you know, Joel? I mean, you're writing a piece today on on the pool.com site about what we actually want from owners and and what would that would that constitute if if FSG were to step aside. It's a different landscape now to 2010, as Dave says, when when Fenway acquired Liverpool, you know, in a high court and they got an absolute steal for the club. Um, Liverpool is valued at over a billion pounds. Who buys Liverpool? What what do we what is it we want from, from an owner? Who can we who can we reasonably expect to come into the club? Do we look at more of a of a fan model? Is that not without problems? You know, there's, there's tons of questions around this now in terms of what we do moving forward. Yeah, I mean I, I completely understand and agree with the sentiment that it's it's kind of coming to an end of the road for FSG in terms of being able to repair the, the trust that they've severed. That the issue is then when you look to who realistically could afford to buy. I don't know how the actual numbers of what Liverpool are worth now, but it's a very limited number of, of the types of people or organisations that could buy Liverpool. And there's no guarantees that you're getting someone who's going to be better or have the clubs or the city's interests more at heart than FSG. I think to go back to the 50 plus one thing that Dave mentioned earlier, I think I've been a, a bit of a look into that this morning, but from from my understanding, that's not to say that the fans would own more than 50% of a club, it's that they'd have more than 50% of the voting rights in key decisions. So I still think you could have kind of an owner, a different ownership or a very rich ownership who could afford the club, but fans actually still get a say, even if they don't have a financial stake. I think that's what that refers to. If that's the case, then, then massively, that probably needs to be the route they go down. I think... It, I mean, just to ponder FSG's position in a wider sense, what's what's so difficult to kind of come to terms with in the last two, three days is that, yes, you had a significant kind of proportion of supporters up until now who had significant doubts because of the, the previous mistakes they've made and the backtracking they've had to do. But as, as kind of Matt mentioned earlier, the amount of good things they've done, i.e. recruiting a manager like Klopp, winning basically the biggest club honours in football, They've obviously built the main stands, the new training complexes, all these things that when you set out when they first arrived in, in 2010, what would you want to see them do in the next 10 years? I think most of those things, they've kind of ticked off the list and yet they've somehow managed to 
unravel all of that goodwill that existed um, in the space of two or three days or something that they could have completely foreseen but chose to do anyway is just kind of staggering. It will be interesting just in sort of, I would be surprised if they're still at the club in a few years' time, but in, say, five to ten years down the line, how we all kind of look back on their entire reign will be a really fascinating one because they, as I said, they have kind of delivered on pretty much all the objectives that you would set out for owners. Um, I think going forward, and I don't know who Liverpool's next owners or what kind of type of owners could be, but the main thing, number one thing, above all else is is consultation and listening you want you don't expect them to come in and get everything right or, or know everything about the sport and the city but what you want and i think what has frustrated people so much about fsg is just a sense that they they have their heads kind of in a in a different world where they just don't listen and even though they've got people on the ground in liverpool who they could just speak to and pick up the phone and get a sense of what people kind of general opinion is on a matter they just press ahead with their own kind of motives and their own desires and kind of let everything burn around it. And I think that's for any future ownership has to be the number one thing is, is kind of keeping the communication lines open and, and consulting before kind of going ahead and, and making such big decisions. I don't think they're going anywhere, to be honest with you. Uh, the, the venture capitalists, they are more than John Henry and Tom Werner. They're a massive group. I think the the red the, the red bear thing, um, Matt, you'll know a lot, lot more about that. Um, I think shows that they're willing to to welcome additional investments, but I I think they will. I'd be staggered if they tried to sell a club on the back of this because I think they've got um, they've got the valuation more than three or four times what it's worth, and they see this as something that is. Uh, the future of probably their own group. That's that's my own personal opinion. Um, but on that, Matt, we're now talking about the future. We've got the likes of SOS who are asking them to consider their position at Liverpool. There's potential that this starts to get a bit Hicks and Gillette ugly, in my opinion, in that protests and, um, and active... Um, yeah, rebellion against the owners becomes a, a viable thing from supporters. That is well within people's rights if they believe that's what they want to do and they, they, they feel aggrieved enough. What I would say is that is not an environment conducive to what Jürgen Klopp needs to harness success at a football club. And we've seen that time and again he's a manager that and a man that Liverpool needs at the helm in situations like this. And time and again, he comes out and he backs the owners and he tells us that they're decent people with decent intentions and that they're not people who he feels like he cannot work with. And guess what I'm asking is, what do we do now for the sake of the team, for the sake of the manager, for the sake of getting Liverpool back to where we want them to be on the pitch? What do we do? How do we balance this with the ineptitude shown from the owners and our obvious displeasure at events in the last 48 hours, it's a really difficult one to gauge. Yeah, I think it's a, a really difficult one to, to sort of put a, a position on it, to be honest. I think first and foremost, we should say it's no coincidence that they come out with these plans at a time when fans are not in the ground. I, th- I don't think it, it would have been something they'd have 
had the nerve to attempt had fans been in the stadium because the protests, the you know, I'd be surprised if, if the Leeds game even got played, to be honest. If, if fans were in the ground, I think there would be such a mess created around it if they'd have tried that. I don't think it, it would have even happened. So it's going to be fascinating to see what sort of happens, not just with Liverpool, but obviously we focus specifically on them, you know, moving forward with this. I think there's going to be, as you say, a, a lot of kind of anger. I know, obviously, Jurgen Klopp and, and James Milner both spoke on Monday about, you know, feeling that, that Leeds fans had sort of targeted them with the abuse because, you know, it, it's obviously nothing to do with them. It, it wasn't their decision. But I think you'd rather that they targeted the players in that sort of instance because they couldn't have, have targeted the owners. The owners were nowhere to be seen. They had to, to put on some sort of protest to stop this. And ultimately, the only sort of symbol of Liverpool Football Club that was available to protest against was the players and, and was the manager. So I think that's that sort of thing is, is going to continue, obviously, not in terms of, of protesting this, but in terms of, of what happens next. I think in terms of, of FSG at Liverpool, you, you're spot on. Joel's spot on as well, though, that, you know, if we say that it's untenable, they can't continue. Well, who comes in in their place? That's the the difficult thing. I think there's no there's no sort of indication that they would want to move on. They've only just got this seven hundred million US dollar investment. They've sort of gone down that route. I think partly with the Super League in mind. It'd be interesting to see what happens with that next. I know, you know Jerry Cardinal, who was you know very influential in that, is very influential in terms of of TV deals in terms of selling pay-per-view media sort of packages and and things like that, going down very much that American model. At this stage, it's just too soon to sort of see what the knock-on effect of of that deal is. But I think that the one thing that we can say for sure right now is that they've no intentions of selling Liverpool and, and moving on. I think the only way that that would get forced upon them is if the reaction, once fans are back, once fan groups, you know, pull themselves into a, a position of being able to, to lobby against these things. I think I can foresee a situation where maybe they start to actively think maybe, you know, this isn't for us because it's just got to, to such a, a vociferous situation that they can't continue. But, you know, I think we're, we're still a few months away from that happening. That's that's why for me the the fifty plus one voting rights rule is actually should be the focus of all Liverpool supporters uh, for, from now on really in terms of any protests and things like that because like you say the, the manager and the players don't deserve to get this negative impact I don't think it, it you know it's possibly the right way to communicate it because I think it would just negatively affect the team which which no supporter wants and again they were absolutely nothing to do with this so I think. And like we said about, you know, you don't know who would be the, the owners that come in to, to replace FSG. It could be anyone. It could be someone who doesn't have the club's best interest at heart. You could end up with another Hicks and Gillette situation. So the only thing that would guard against that and guard against no matter who takes over the club would have to act in the club's best interest is that 50 plus one rule. That, that basically guards you against any problems going forward with your ownership for the remainder of time. So I think that that should really be the focus of supporters is pushing the government and, and, and coordinating protests around that and, and really lobbying the government to bring that ruling because that I think that's the only thing that, that you could say then confidently going forward is that, that fans will always have a say then and, and we won't end up in a situation where anything like this could could even remotely get off the ground as we've seen that the you know the two German clubs weren't anywhere near this Super League proposal and I think you know there might be some greedy people at the top of that those clubs but they weren't allowed to act in those interests because you know they knew that they couldn't, and and I think that's that's the situation we need to get English football into, and that that should be the main priority. 
Yeah, I mean, just on a final note, Dave, the, the press conference uh, on Friday for Jurgen Klopp, I think it is. Um, he's going to keep fielding these questions. He's going to have to keep um, giving answers on them. You back that he will be genuine. You back that he will say the right things. And you back that he will act within the best interests of his team. I think, I guess where the final question I'm going to ask is, is you know, where the... Like I asked Matt, where do the fans now sit in this? There was talk that flags and banners have been removed from the cop. Will they go back on? It, it is important that the fans show that, obviously, we know this. They're not making an enemy of the team and the, and the manager. That They're still behind them, that that they still support them first and foremost. And, yeah, making that the priority, but also you know, getting that differential between that and, and their anger towards the owners is, is a difficult thing, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I think the banner should go back. Like I said, I think you know, I think it will be counterproductive for for supporters to continue directing their ire towards the players and managers who couldn't have they couldn't have done more really, could they? In terms of uh, pushing against it themselves, I think you know Klopp's interviews over the uh, after the Leeds, well before and after the Leeds game were, were spot on. He, he made quite clear that you had no interest in it. Um, you know what James Milner said, then the players' collective statement. So anything that sort of damages them in any way I, I think would be extremely unfair and I, I hope there's sort of sense seen on that and that the, the banners do get put back because that's that's probably not the best way to get at the owners they don't you know they are removed from all that so like I said really I think I, I think the main focus and you know I would like to see fan groups all coming together is, is to campaign the government and, and, and make sure that legislation is brought in because I think anything else will just will just have a bad effect on the team and, and that's absolutely not what any fan wants and, and not what the players and the manager deserve. Okay, uh, that's been this week's Liverpool.com podcast. There's not been a, a lot to talk about, so we do apologise, but we'll uh, we'll have to go with what we have, which has been a slow news week, unfortunately. Uh, huge thanks to Dave, to Joel and to Matt. Uh, we'll see you next time. Take care.